Welcome to the headlines show this week. This is Aryeh Leibowitz. I'll be filling in this week. And this week we're going to be talking about issues relating to kashras. Uh, we have the privilege of having with us Rabbi Moshe Elephant, the COO of OU Kashras, a well-known Dafyomi Magachir, and one of the world's experts in the area of kashras. We're going to talk about a number of different issues that people often wonder about when it comes to kashras, both in terms of how kashras generally works behind the scenes, maybe some halachic details, and maybe some of the common questions that come up when people are traveling and they need to know uh, whether something requires a hashkacha or doesn't require a hashkacha. Uh, welcome, Rabbi Elephant. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm a big fan of your show. Oh, wonderful. It's, it's, I try it's to listen mine. to Mat- <laughs> It's David. It's not mine. Okay, but, but I try to listen on Matzali Shabbos. Um, I get up early because I give a shear early, but I, I try to keep my eyes open for at least as much as I can during your Matzali Shabbos show. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I'll we'll certainly pass along that message to David. Um, Rabbi Elephant, if you could just give us a little bit of background. I mean, I know your title is COO of the Orthodox Union, and we know that the Orthodox Union is the world's largest kashrus organization. But what does it mean to be a COO, and what, what exactly does that entail? Um, well, as you correctly said, the OU is the largest kashrus agency in the world. We certify close to 9,000 facilities in over 80 countries around the world and every one of the 50 states of the United States. Um, In our office itself, we have over 50 Rabbonim working and we have obviously hundreds of Mashgichim around the country and around the world working with us, some on a full-time basis, some on our part-time basis, and of course, um, if we take into account all the shritas, all the different places that we give hashgacha and shrita, then the number even increases more so. And it's a large operation, and there's a lot going on literally every minute, um, whether it's personnel issues, um, when you have so many rabbonim and mashgichim, whether it's managing a computer system, because everything we do here at the OU now is online. And because we're a unique business, we had to create a custom system. It's not a system that you could just go into the store and buy off the shelf because they don't, they don't make um, programs for cashless agencies. There aren't that many in the world, certainly none the size of the OU. Whether there are problems that come up in, co- in companies, hashgacha issues, whether there are issues with relationships with other hashgachas, um, that's some of what I have to manage and whatever else comes across my desk um, whenever so it comes across my desk. Is, is the OU hashgacha in Eretz Yisrael as widely accepted as it is in America? Um, is, are there any differences in terms of the pop? Israel versus the way it works in America? So that's an excellent question. Reality is that the OU Hashgacha Israel was created not to be a local Hashgacha Israel because um, we're not really needed in Israel. There's no shortage of Hashgachas in Israel. There's obviously the Rabbanut, 
Harashit of the whole country, and every town, every city has its own Rabbanot, and then there are the various Mahadrin Hashgachas, the Badats, and Rabbi Landau, and Rabbi Rubin, etc. So we really were not brought, we don't see our role in Etzisrael primarily to be a local Hashgacha. Our role in Etzisrael primarily is that there are many companies in Etzisrael who are manufacturing different food items that are exporting those food items to the United States and to other countries around the world. And in these different locations where this food is arriving, the Hashgacha that is best known is the OU. And therefore, they ask the OU to give Hashgacha to these products. To answer your question, um, there's a few more points. Um, in terms of our standards in Etzisrael, actually... Our standards in Etzisrael, if anything, are stricter than our standards in America or around the world. And I'll give you a number of examples. One is regarding Chal Yisrael. The OU is not makbid, is not strict that dairy products we certify have to be Chal Yisrael. However, in Etzisrael, we insist that everything be Chal Yisrael. Yashon, again, in the United States and around the world, the OU is not Makbed on Yashan, and Eretz Yisrael, we are. Um, and the same goes for Pas Yisrael. So if anything, because that's the Minig Hamakim in Eretz Yisrael, that's the standard of most reliable Hashgachs in Eretz Yisrael, we want to follow that standard in Eretz Yisrael as well. So if you'll see a product coming from Eretz Yisrael, and you're Makbed on Yashan, you can know it's if it has the OU, it's Yashan. The same thing for Chal Yisrael, unless there are one or two minor exceptions, and the product will say, will say so. So how Shgachan Et Yisrael is equal in terms of supervision, and in terms of standards, a little stricter. However, a number of years ago, there were many people that turned to us and said to us, because so many people travel, Baruch Hashem, from the United States and around the world, Territ Yisrael, and there's so much confusion about the reliability of Kashrus and who can you rely on and who can't you rely on, they asked us to get involved in supervising local establishments. It's not something that we were anxious to do, and it's not something that we really want to do, A, because as I said a moment ago, really belongs to the local Rabbanim. Hello, comfortable in any way. I was just, I'm, I'm working with what I've heard on the street. Word on the street is, what people say is that the way Hashkachas, and this is not really an OU question, it's a Hashkacha in Eretz Yisrael question, is that the way the Rabbanut work in Eretz Yisrael is that legally the all Rabbanut, if they're not Mahadrin, have to accept each other's Hashkachos, meaning ingredients from each other, and they can't really set their own standards unless they, they, they slap the Mahadran label on it. Is that, is that factually accurate? It's pretty accurate, meaning technically one Rabbanut is supposed to accept another Rabbanut, and they typically do. Um, I've actually um, not willingly been brought into situations where one local Rabbanut did not want to accept the Hashgach of another local Rabbanut because they felt it wasn't strong enough and they wanted the OU's opinion. But when 
someone goes to Eretz Yisrael, and unfortunately, this is the real difficulty, and I've tried to explain this to some of my colleagues and the other Hashgachas in Eretz Yisrael. You know, people who live in Eretz Yisrael take the attitude, there's plenty of Mahadran food available in Eretz Yisrael, and of course it's true. And there are many takeout stores in Eretz Yisrael with very reliable Hashgacha. Um, just walk down uh, May Sharim or walk down Gula, and you have numerous stores, and everywhere in Etzisrael, certainly you have stores like that with reliable hashgacha. What people in Etzisrael somewhat fail to realize is that when we, from Chutzlaritz, come to Etzisrael, we don't have homes where we can eat and buy food and prepare it at home, or buy even takeout food and eat it at home, because we're staying in hotels or other places that don't really have accommodations to eat. And it's, it's a huge problem for guests vis- visiting at Yisrael. The OU, as I was saying, started getting involved because of this issue, but it's something that we're not really anxious to be involved with, and we're quite limited and limiting ourselves in our involvement. In fact, as recently as about six weeks ago, on my last trip to Yisrael, I met one of the most prominent Rabbonim, in Yerushalayim, a Rav who's quite possibly um, the biggest Paisic in the American, the Anglo community in Yerushalayim, which is obviously a very, very large community. And he literally was asking me, Rabbi Elephant, please get the OU involved in giving hashgachas to restaurants here in Yerushalayim, because we have to be able to tell our parents and the boys and girls who are learning in yeshivas and at the where they could eat. Um, but it's it's very complicated, and it's not something that the OU is anxious to be involved with. It means that, that policy would seem to suggest that your best Rabbanut is no better than your worst Rabbanut. Because it's true, unless it's Mahadran. Unless, unless it says Mahadran. And, 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 and I want to be very clear, um, and, I'm not, and I have a wonderful relationship with the Rabbanut, but in Eretz Yisrael, unlike the United States, I'll just give you an example that people don't even realize. In the United States, any reliable hashgacha uses only glatt meat. In Eretz Yisrael, a regular rabbanut you cannot assume is using glatt meat. And, and if anything, um, giving hashgacha in Eretz Yisrael is much more complicated than giving hashgach in the United States, because obviously there we have an issue with mitzvahs at Baritz. So certainly when you're dealing with a Shemitah year, the Rabbanut, unless stated otherwise, relies on the Hetamachira, which many B'nai Torah don't rely on. There are other Hetam they rely on regarding Trumas and Maestris, which are very, very serious issues. And certainly I've seen myself, people who I know, who are very uh, makbid on Kashrus, I've seen them travel on Elal, going back from Israel to the United States, and they say to meet this kosher, we'll eat it. But I explained to them, and I asked them, well, would you eat non-glot meat? They say, never. I said, well, you can't assume that the meat is glot unless it says so. Right. Wow. Um, going back to the, to the OU, um, and again, I'm working with hearsay because I have no real 
uh, connection to the OU other than a number of years ago. I spent three weeks at the uh, the Ask OU program, which was really... Well, that's what we're doing right now. Um, so the, the, the way th- that uh, I understood how things work in terms of determining Pesach Halacha in the OU was that the various kashrus professionals would describe the Matthias in great detail and the issues to the OU poskim who were Rabelsky, Zichron of Racha, and Yibadol Chaim Podmaruchim, Mori Varabi Rav Shechter, Shlita, and that uh, they would make the halachic decisions, and if there was some sort of disagreement, Rabbi Ganak would... Uh, would 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 make the decision um, since the the absence of Rabelsky, I guess, through the course of his illness, and certainly since his patira, ha- how have things changed in determining psachalach at the OU? Well, we certainly here at the OU um, miss Rabelsky terribly. Uh, Rabelsky was an individual who we relied on very in a very serious way. And Rabelsky was an extremely unique individual in his um, ability to pass in so many different types of shilas. His breadth of knowledge was incredible, and, and we miss him very, very much. Um, however, as we have to continue, and that's what he would have wanted, because Rabelsky, um, I don't know how much people realize, besides that Rabelsky was our, one of our Paiskim here at the OU, Rabelsky was actually a fan of the OU. He very much believed in the mission of the OU. He very much believed in the way the OU operates. He was very much, I, I, can, I wish I could count how many times he, told, he spoke to me about this, the fact that the OU is not a private hashgacha, that the OU is not owned by any individual. It's a communal organization, and that there's no one individual who can make any final decision without consultation. He, he was very... Um, very, very much promoted that type of kashras. But as I said, we need to continue as he wanted us to continue. And what we have is as follows. As you said, Baruch Hashem, we have Rav Shechter um, still very much involved. The Rabbanim who work here are all from all types of yeshivas. It's beautiful to see the group of Rabbanim who work here, it's like the United Nations of yeshivas. Every yeshiva, um, Beis Merish obviously, and, and Chaim Berlin, and Tarvadas, and Mir, and Yitzchok Ochanan, every yeshiva is represented here, and they're all Talmidei Chachamim. And we have recorded, I'm not just saying, you know, what people remember by hearsay, but we have recorded thousands of Piskei Halacha the Rabelsky and Rav Shechter and Rabbi Ganak have written over the years, which have established what we should do. So it's not like we get new Shilas every day. Um, many of the Shilas, if I could say probably most of the Shilas we get, are Shilas that we've already addressed. But there are new Shilas, and there are new situations. And we have Rabbi Shechter, and we have Rabbi Belsky. We've also... Rabbi Usher Weiss, a uh, well-known Pesach from Etisrael, has joined. He actually already joined before Rabelsky was Nifter, but at that point his involvement was less because we had Rabelsky and Rav Shechter. Now with Rabelsky's Ptira, Rabbi Weiss has taken on more of an active role. And there are wow. other Pesach. 
and there are other Paiskim, yes, he's, and he's, he's fantastic. Um, his Kayach in writing a tshuva is incredible. So he's become he's more very, involved. He's fearless. He's a very brave Paiskim also. Right, right. And that was, that was actually, you know, many times I had the opportunity since Rabelsky's Petira to speak about Rabelsky. And Rabelsky, you know, there are some people that have labeled Rabelsky as a makel. And that's absolutely not true, because I could spend a lot of time um, telling you different Piskei Halacha, where Rabelsky was actually a very big machmer. Yeah. Having said that, what was Rabelsky? Rabelsky was a man of truth. He was Isha Emes. And he passed with what he thought the truth was, whether Lakula or Lechumra, strictly or leniently. And I think Rabbi Weiss very much has that characteristic also. He's Isha Emes, and he passes the Shiloh as he sees it. And he has a tremendous ability, not just to pass in the Shiloh, but to write beautiful chuvas, which is critical here at the OU because we want everything recorded um, and to be followed on. And there are other Paiskim. But I can't actually mention them, Hames, because we have, we're still speaking to them. Um, and hopefully they will also join us in different capacities to help us pass in the, the Shilas that come to us. But I do have to conclude answering this question by saying there will not be another Rabelsky. Right. What are some of the, the current issues in Kashrus? What are the cutting-edge uh, questions that have been coming up recently that maybe weren't dealt with a decade ago? Well, you know, I, I can't identify particularly any really um, specific new questions in terms of equipment, because I really, um, you know, I can't see or think of anything new. Some of the current issues that we're facing, uh, I would rather say fall into the category of policy. But in the area of Kashrus, the line, the boundary between policy and halacha is a very, very blurred line. Um, I'll give you some examples, just some of the issues that have crossed my desk that, that I'm dealing with. Um, the, the issue of level of supervision. Level of supervision is, is a very, very complicated issue. You know, there are very few places that the Shulchan Aruch is explicit in what is required to do proper kashrus. Yes, the Shulchan Aruch is explicit that a shaykhet has to shecht the animal, no one else can shecht an animal or a chicken. And he has to do the shrita, etc. But if you have a factory which is all, which, is, which wants a hashgacha, I would say well over 90% of the factories that we certify do not have a mishgir to meet. They do not have full-time supervision. What we rely on is in Yoytzevenichnes, where somebody comes on an unannounced periodic basis and that the company has signed a contract obligating themselves to what they may use and, will, and they can't bring anything into the factory without our prior written authorization. Making the decision of which factory should we give Ashgacha to? And it's not just factories. It's much more complicated when you're dealing with restaurants and caterers who, and, and shchitas, who is worthy of getting a Ashgacha and who should we avoid giving Ashgacha? You know, many times, many times, different places I'm asked, 
if you had to, Rabbi Elephant, in one sentence, define what is the definition or what is the description of a good hashgacha. So what would you say? And, you know, people expect me to say whoever has the most chashiv rabbonim and whoever has this and whoever has that. And I have a whole different description. My description is the hashgacha that knows how to say no. The hashgacha that knows that when they get an application for certain hashgacha, they should know that this is not a hashgacha that we should be giving because it's too complicated or because the people who are requesting hashgacha should not be receiving hashgacha. The hashgacha that knows to drop a hashgacha when the company is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The hashgacha, and this is very sensitive what I tell you now, that knows that if there was a company that did something inappropriate, challenging the status of the cashers of the product, doesn't have a problem with putting an ad in the paper saying this is a product you shouldn't use or even, if necessary, doing a recall, which obviously no company wants you to do, but every OU contract with every one of the companies that we certify gives us that ability. Obviously, it's not something we abuse. That's the definition of a good hashgacha. And frankly, you asked me, what are the shilas that a hashgacha has to deal with? Those are the hard questions. Because with Baruch Hashem, and I don't know how it was in America 50, 60 years ago. But today, there's no shortage of kosher food. And because there's no shortage, Baruch Hashem, of kosher food, we don't have to rely on coolers. We don't have to rely on leniencies. And if there's a hashgacha, if there's a, a company that isn't ready to be 100% with the requirements, we just won't give the hashgacha. That's the easy part. The difficult part is deciding who's worthy of getting hashgacha and who should lose the hashgacha and how to manage the hashgacha on a day-to-day basis. I see. Let me just ask you about uh, an issue that is not really directly related to anything that we've been talking about to this point, but I think it's probably one of the issues that, that at least facts on the ground in terms of Balabatim in their own homes struggle with the most, and that is how to relate to Bidikas Tola'im. Um, it seems, at least the perception is, that the, the world has been moving in one direction for uh, the past decade or two. And, uh, you know, questions of requiring light boxes and various kinds of filters to, you know, where, where making a salad becomes a, uh, a, a huge ordeal. And sometimes, I know certainly locally, I live in the five towns, um, you know, the, the stores, uh, we have a very good hashkaf agency here, the, the Vada of the Five Towns and Farakway, and the stores will sell pre-checked lettuce, but it's, it's obviously going to be at a much higher price because of the manpower involved in uh, doing the washing and, and the checking, and it could become somewhat, somewhat prohibitive. What changed? Is it just the amount of knowledge that changed? Is this a violation of multilateral rishonim? Is everything so? That that that's an extremely comp- complicated question, and I'm going to answer your question with a personal experience that's not related to Tulum, and then we'll talk about Tulum. When I joined the OU close to 30 years ago, um, one of my first assignments here at the OU was to be in charge of, a, to be involved with a review department. 
that we would be reviewing all of the different Hashgacha programs that we have. And one of the one of the companies, one of the first companies I called to arrange a review, said to me, Rabbi, we've been under the OU for decades. Why are you going to change anything? And I went to the other Rabbanim who were here already prior to my coming, and I asked them, it's a great question, how am I supposed to answer? And that Rav told me that if you're going to take that approach to Kashrus, that this is the way it was and this is the way it should remain, then you shouldn't really be in the world of Kashrus. If, if you want to take what your responsibility is seriously, you need to be able to constantly review what you're doing and make sure you're doing it well and make sure that you're doing it as best as can be. And taking the approach that this is the way it was and that's the way it should remain, remain is not the way to go. And therefore, to take the approach that, well, if they didn't have all these issues on different fruits and vegetables all of the years, so how come they were discovered in 2016, is not the way serious cashers should be looked at. Serious cashers is that we check and we're careful with everything we eat. And the reality is, the reality is that there are changes in the way fruits and vegetables are grown. There are different um, pesticides, and pesticides have their cycles. I mean, in two ways. First of all, sometimes pesticides are popular and companies use them, and then there are many people in different times who want to avoid pesticides. Anything that has the label of organic didn't have pesticides applied to that fruit and vegetable. Moreover, even if pesticides are applied, the fruits and vegetables grow resistance to those pesticides. So therefore, the short answer to your question is, I'm not that focused on the past. I'm, I'm focused on the present. I'm focused on what is the reality with the fruits and vegetables. I do, however, have to say, and I want to say this carefully, I don't believe that it is the will of Hashem that every fruit and vegetable should not be eaten. Um, I think there's a responsibility that we, Rabbanim HaMachshirim, have to make sure that we have the proper standard. But to start taking the approach that everything is prohibited is also inappropriate. And you need responsible Tamidei Chachamim who are knowledgeable both in the halacha and in the reality to make that decision. So I have to share with you your feeling. It seems that everything has become prohibited. It's a feeling that I don't appreciate. It's a feeling that I think many people are starting to have. Many people have voiced that opinion to me, and we in the world of conscious are taking that very seriously. It's not so much a concern that everything is becoming prohibited, and I, I wholly agree that a person, uh, certainly cautious organizations should be always reviewing policies. I, I'm more concerned about the need for extreme measures to check as opposed to checking with your eyes in, in decent Well, now we, now, now we go into the halacha. So that's a really halacha question. The answer to the question is as follows. The halacha differentiates between the situation of a miyat hamotzui and a miyat she'enamotzui, which means as follows. If a vegetable is muhsuk betaloim, where there's a strong assumption that there's infestation, the halacha is very strict in 
your, our requirement to check the vegetable or fruit before we eat it. In a situation where it's a mirchenamotsui, where it's highly unlikely, which most paiskim, and that's the opinion, that's the uh, position of the OU, where it's less than a 10% chance that the fruit or vegetable is infested. Our is position that, is you could eat... Per fruit or per portion or per... Oh, so that's, that, 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 that's a complicated question itself. How do you measure 10%? And our position is per portion. Per, if you would take a salad... And this is the amount of salad you would eat of, with, with this fruit or vegetable. That's what we consider. And is there a 10% chance or greater that it will find something or not? The other point, and there's a few. So ne the next status, which is the most common status, is a miyotamotsui, where it's not typically infested, but it's commonly infested, more than 10%, where the halacha requires that you check. Now the question is, to really complicate matters, what is called checking? Because as the Gemara says, The Torah wasn't given to Malachim. And the Torah doesn't expect us to see what isn't really visible. Because if that were the case, we would have a problem breathing. Because there are probably many organisms in the air we breathe. And those organisms are not kosher either. But the Torah doesn't expect us to, to live that way. So now... You look, and I get this question all the time. People tell me, I look, and I see nothing. And then I come to shul, and the rav, or I listen to a radio program about kashra, says, oh, this is completely infested. So that's a very big issue. What is considered visible that now would prohibit the fruit? And I had the schus to discuss the shayla, more than once with Rebbe Yoshev Zetzal, parenthetically, because you asked before who passed Shilas for the OU, uh, Rebbe Yoshev was never on staff at the OU. But Rebbe Yoshev, whenever we came to Eretz Yisrael, would welcome us and answer our Shilas. I even have written chuvas from him on Shilas that we asked. And I know someone once asked him, why are you so um, nice and cooperative with the questions that the OU asks, Rabbi Yosher was known to be an individual with very limited time. And he used to answer, because I know I'm answering Shilas for Klai because everybody's relying on the OU. And Rabbi Yosher's position was that you don't have to actually see with your naked eye an insect to make it usher. But if you see something, if you see something, and now, maybe when you look at it, you just see a black dot, and it doesn't look like an insect, but because you see something, that gives you the obligation to look further. Do you, do you have to look at that black dot under a magnifying glass? To now you have to do whatever it takes to determine what that black dot is. As once you see a black dot, you can't just say, well, it doesn't look like an insect to me, so I don't have to worry. Once you saw that black dot, you have to start investigating what it is. And that's the OU policy. Meaning, this is. And that is the OU policy, that, correct? Right. Rav Vosner says otherwise, I, I believe. But that's uh, that the OU policy is to follow Rav Yashiv on, right. on that. Um, okay. Let me just ask you about um, maybe maybe some of the more policy-related uh, issues that you were referring to before about where to and where not to give ashkacha. I know certainly, probably, I would imagine the OU wouldn't give ashkacha. Let's say in a. Uh, a casino or a place where something really wrong is happening. But to, to what extent does 
non-kashrus issues enter into the equation when determining whether to give hashgacha. You know, let's say that we, I know I've been involved in discussions, restaurants that have televisions all, all over the place, and you can't really control what's being shown on the television. Certainly you could challenge the halachas of shmir se'inayim. Um, so to, to what extent does, would, would a hashgacha, whether it's the OU or, or even a local hashgacha, is it appropriate for hashgacha to get involved in, in, in that kind of issue? And, and, and it's a great question, and there's no simple answer to the question. I'll tell you what the OU policy is. If I had to, um, if I had to describe it in a sentence or so, OU policy is that we will only give hashgacha to an establishment, a restaurant, a place that anybody's invited to walk in, if everybody would be comfortable walking in there. So if there's going to be a restaurant where there is a entertainment, which is inappropriate. Um, a casino is a great example. The OU has been approached many times to give hashgacha to cruises, but I've never been on a cruise. But I understand most of these um, ships do have casinos, or we were asked to give hashgacha to establishments in Atlantic City, and we've always declined because we feel that a person who goes into an establishment that has an OU on it has to be not just comfortable knowing that the food that they're eating is kosher, they have to be comfortable eating there. The television is a much more complicated question. Again, we probably would take the approach that if you could go into the restaurant and not necessarily have to see a television, in other words, they don't have televisions all around the perimeter of the restaurant, so you could sit at a table without seeing the television, then we would um, n- probably give the hashgacha, but we would still require that they not um, obviously show anything that we felt was inappropriate. You'd, you'd have a certain amount of trust or common sense. No, they, everywhere uh, we give, we have a mashgiach. Every oh, restaurant okay. that we certify has a mashgiach tamidi, has a full-time mashgiach, and he would be given that um, directive to make sure that that is being followed. That's, that's a lot for a mashgiach to, to lose. Yeah, but again, what we would do is we wouldn't give the mashgiach the responsibility of shutting the television or starting to scream and yell. If the mashgiach thought that there was something going on that was not according to what OU policy dictates, we, Baruch Hashem, have Rabbonim, including myself, who are literally on call 24-6. You know, in the world of Kashris, you get a whole new appreciation for Shabbos, because, the, because Kashris is a 24-hour-a-day job. Um, particularly, as I said earlier, we're giving hashgachos all over the world. So when we're supposed to be sleeping, the rest of the world may be up and we have shilas that we have to answer. So we would tell the mashgich, if you see something that you think is a question, call us and we'll, take, we'll make the decision. And not only will we make the decision, we'll implement that decision and not put you in a complicated place. Right. That I, I realize that you're very busy and you're running to give a share. Can I just ask one, one final question? As uh, many as you want, once you got okay. me. <laughs> uh, this is, um, I guess, also on the uh, a kind of question that only someone on the inside in Kashrus could maybe, could maybe answer. And it's not a halachic question. It's just perplexing. Uh, a lot of times, 
Um, I'll be asked by uh, someone who governs in my shul, let's say, about a hashkacha. I'll get a text with a picture of a hashkacha. So I'll ask around different people in Kashrus, you know, who work in the OU or work in other organizations, and, and I'll often hear a refrain like, that, that hashkacha is uh, run by a person who's a fine Tamil Chacham, an Erlich Yid, uh, but the hashkacha is lacking, and he doesn't have the ability to oversee everything, or he's, uh, his policies aren't strong. So I, I guess the, the question is, how is that possible? How do we reconcile that a person is a Tamil Chacham and honest, and he gives hashkacha where... That that can't be relied upon. If he, if he were so honest, how could you know? It's a great, it's a great, great question. And you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you asked me, "How do I spend my day?" And I told you that I spend my day working with other hashgachos. And this is probably one of the most challenging parts of my job. And let me explain to you why. The reason it's so challenging is because we at the OU have to decide. We, we don't insist that all ingredients that are used in facilities that are OU certified have to be OU certified. We insist that they have to be reliably certified. So we end up deciding about the reliability of hundreds of hashgachas on a daily basis. And, and to make that decision is not easy. And you're so correct. Uh, you, you, you really know what's going on. Because you have people who are big tamid chachamim, but their hashgacha doesn't match their level of, uh, of lambdas. Because hashgacha isn't just lambdas. Hashgacha means an infrastructure. Hashgacha means, as I said at the beginning, having a good computer system. Hashgacha means having adequate staff who could deal with the different issues. Hashgacha means knowledge of ingredients. And knowledge of ingredients is not particularly or, pre- or mainly halacha. Knowledge of ingredients is food science, knowing what is an ingredient and is this a problematic ingredient or not. Knowledge of halacha means, knowledge, giving a good hashgacha means are you ready to walk away from hashgacha? As I said earlier, if somebody is a private individual and he has a very large hashgacha, if he's going to walk away from that hashgacha, he's actually walking away from his parnasa. And that's a difficult decision to make. So all of these factors and many others go into what makes up a good hashgacha. And therefore, it's complicated and it's very complicated to say that you have this individual, but his hashgacha is not up to what we want to accept. And I just want to add, and it's very much related to what I think where you're going. Hashgacha is not just the job or not just the responsibility of people who give hashgacha. Of course, we have the larger share of the responsibility. But hashgacha also is the job of the consumer. And a consumer has to be knowledgeable has to be knowledgeable about what he's doing or she is doing and what she's buying or he buying and not just say it has a symbol on it or not just make assumptions. And, and, and we here at the OU are, are very focused on that and trying to educate people about Kashrus because we feel that Kashrus is a partnership between the Rabbonim and the consumer. 
and it means making hard choices, and it means maybe not eating something you want to eat. But you have to realize that kashrus is complicated. It's become more complicated because any food that you buy, almost any food that you buy, is made up of many ingredients, and those ingredients come from all over the world. And there are so many, and you have to be up to date on what's going on in the world of kashrus, and you need to have that information readily available. And if you don't, as much of a Talmud Chacham as you are, you probably shouldn't be giving hashgachas. So there are people that are honest and are big Talmudic Chacham, but they're not even aware of what they need to know right. in order to give a proper hashgachas. You know, you know, the only one that can really ask a Shaila, you're a Rav, you know this, the only one that can ask a Shaila is really a Talmud Chacham. You, only, you could only know, uh, first you have to know where there's an issue. And then you can start trying to investigate. But if you don't have that level of knowledge, then you don't have that ability to make that honest assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I said that was the last question, but like, like any good rabbi, I have to um, end with another one after I said I was really going to. I, I have a rule. When anybody says he's only going to speak for a short amount of time, or oh, this is the last question, that's the end of it. That means we're going for a long time. Exactly. So... So um, I, I've been asked or told sometimes, even off the cuff, where people will say that they're traveling in the Far East or in different places, and they know that they could always go into a vegan place because the vegans are so much firmer than us in terms of what they're going to use and how careful they are. Now, um, I, I happen to believe that that's a major error for about seven or eight reasons, but I, I, I'm curious to hear uh, what issues you might identify. That well, there, there, there are numerous issues. There are numerous issues um, in no specific order. The first issue, obviously, is Bishlakim, because um, any food that there's an issue when Akam is cooking the food that a Jew has to turn on the fire is the same if it's vegan or not. So you need to have, so that's your first issue, Abishalakim. Your second issue, again, with no specific order, is let's say they're using a vegetable oil. So yes, it's a vegetable oil, but a reliable hashgacha only uses, or only certifies vegetable oil that is, man, that is refined on kalim, on equipment that's only used for vegetable oil, or if it was used for non-vegetable oil, for animal fat, it was properly kashered, which is extremely complicated, as you could well imagine, before they make the certified vegetable oil. I don't think a vegan restaurant would care as long as it says vegetable oil. Another serious issue is what we spoke about a few moments ago, and that is the checking of the fruits and vegetables. Um, They're not checking, not only are they not checking, it's quite possible, as I said earlier, that this type of an establishment is going to try to use um, organic produce. And organic produce is more likely to have infestation issues than non-organic produce. So again, that's not being taken care of uh, because it's a vegan restaurant. And then the other products and ingredients that they may use, something like a tomato sauce. A tomato sauce can be made, even if it's a pure tomato sauce, but easily can be made on the same equipment that's making tomato sauce with cheese or it's making tomato sauce with meat. And that would be a popular product, I would presume, in a non-certified vegan restaurant. So, uh, you know, 
I would very much um, never recommend that somebody eat in a vegan restaurant, um, in a vegan restaurant that doesn't have ashgacha. I still remember many years ago, there is a very hush Verov, I don't know if you've ever heard his name, Rabbi Chaim Goldzweig, who has been working for the OU since 1960 and has traveled the world on our behalf. And he called me, and he was in India. And he said to me, he was taken by somebody to a restaurant in India with no ashgacha. And he said, how could you take me here? It has no ashgacha. He said, well, you know, in India, we don't eat any animal products. And therefore, what's wrong with a restaurant? And he called me, and he called me from India. He was so flabbergasted. He said, "How could somebody say that?" Yeah, and it really goes back to what I said to you a moment ago. You need to know the basics of kashrus. Everybody has to learn hilchas kashrus, and, and and if you have some basic knowledge, you would, you know, people won't make these kind of mistakes. Right. Okay. Very good. Thank you very much, Elson. We really appreciate your time, your expertise, because uh, uh, I, I would love to pepper you with questions forever. But I know that you're you're very busy, and we really appreciate the time you took out for us. It was very nice to speak to you. Take care. We have with us joining us now on the headlines program Rabbi Zusha Blech, who is a worldwide renowned expert in the field of kashrus. He's someone who's written extensively on kashrus-related issues. He's worked in several kashrus organizations, and behind the scenes, he's known as one of the uh, one of the great experts in the field. And we're going to ask him a number of questions relating to kashrus that maybe perplex the average consumer. Welcome, Rabbi Blech. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. So I'm going to start by asking a, a uh, question that I think I get a lot, certainly as a community rabbi, um, where people very often are traveling somewhere and they're not around their normal neighborhood where they have a lot of stores with, with, uh, with proper ashkacha. And they want to know like, to what extent they can trust certain products, either because it's part of a national chain or because what could be wrong with these products uh, for Ashkacha. So maybe if I, if I, uh, I'll throw out a few examples and, and maybe if you could address each one, if you, were, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I guess for, first most prominently would be coffee. A person wants to buy a coffee or a coffee-type drink at a Starbucks or at a Dunkin' Donuts that, uh, that doesn't have Ashkacha. Is there any problem with that? As a matter of halacha, I don't believe there is. Um, there's actually a note of Yehuda about it, uh, and not Starbucks, of course, and um, relating to this. But the bottom line is that even those who have made um, an issue of Starbucks, and there are people who have written websites about it, and say that, uh, webs- uh, that certain products from Starbucks are a problem, certain are not, they all begin with, a, with the preamble. And the preamble says, Hagam is really mutter. Or hagam that's taught him to be mater, but, and that tells me and should tell anyone that alpidin it's mutter, and then you know people, not everything that's mutter is something that we do, and and um, and it's not something that is necessarily the the best way of doing it, but when you're traveling, there's a word in halacha called bidiyeved, and diyeved is and shasat chakid domi means you don't have something else. If the halacha says it's mutter, then it's mutter. So I don't believe that there's a problem with Starbucks or with Dunkin' Donuts um, with their regular coffees. And those assume they're not flavored coffees, co- flavored coffees 
potentially could pose a concern. Um, if you're worried about Chol of Yisrael, then obviously you wouldn't want to be using their milk. But otherwise, I don't believe coffee is an issue. Okay, what about something like in a in, in a kosher Dunkin' Donuts, for example, you can easily find uh, smoothies and all sorts of different types of mixed beverages, uh, hot chocolate, iced hot chocolate, and they have dozens and dozens of beverages. And, and one would assume that every Dunkin' Donuts uses the same mixes and the same ingredients for their for their drinks. Could one make that same coffee assumption for drinks that he knows are kosher at, at, at reliably? Uh, mm-hmm. at, you at want to make a Mamatsinu. You say Mamatsinu here, we can <laughs> say thing over here. I don't know enough to say that for sure. I, I would, um, most of these things don't contain ingredients that could be major problems, but I would not say a mamutsino. I would say in most cases, you can ask the company to show you what it is. And a lot of times, I won't say all the time, but a lot of times, the, you know, Dunkin' Donuts doesn't make a thing. They have it contracted for them. And oftentimes, the company where these products are made have a hashkacha, and they actually print them on the Dunkin' Donuts. I'm just using some bashful, just an example. On the Dunkin' Donuts label, even though nobody sees it. So if, you know, if you'd like to to ask them to see the label of the product, and then if you want, you can compare it to what's in another store. But just to assume that it's the same in both stores, I think that's that's a little dangerous. Okay, uh, fair enough. Um, maybe maybe this is more of a cashless issue. Uh, sometimes in or all the time, rather in in, in Costco, uh, they have various types of fish available, and they have salmon that they sell frozen with a hashkacha. And then they also have fresh salmon that uh, is filleted, so you don't see the scales on it, but it has that pink salmon flesh right. that makes it very recognizable. Right. So can one can one buy that, assuming that it's actually salmon? Okay. So first of all, there's a concept in modern halacha that I've created called Hilchus Tosco. And people <laughs> call me day in and day out as they're foraging through the aisles in Costco and ask me about this and that, I always say I should create a 900 number so I can get paid every time somebody calls me from Costco. But, I, I think if you added Trader Joe's to that, then you'd make no, a real good living. Yeah. Okay, but the, the salmon actually, here's the story with salmon. The, o, the OU's position um, in the name of Rebelsky uh, Zetzal was that red-fleshed fish is a simon muvik that it's a salmon. Now, I can argue the case and point out that salmon is colored. Not They don't take a paintbrush and color it. They feed it color, and it, it's, uh, it's assimilated into its flesh. But the, the argument is that only salmon fish will assimilate the color into their flesh. I'm not going to get into that. I would just tell you the OU's position, Bishem Rebelsky, was that red-fleshed fish is a simon movement, that it's kosher. So if you accept that, then... The fillets in Costco that look like salmon are salmon, and you can buy them. And indeed, last time I checked, and I don't want to be quoted as for sure, but they buy these from Chile. And in Chile, they actually have a hashkacha from a reputable rub, because all they do in that place is farm-raised salmon. Um, so I wouldn't... I, it, 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 there's a mockum to be somewhat according to the OU. Other people disagree with that. They say red-fleshed fish is no salmon. Um, Chazal never mentioned it. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole lot about why, but it, 
you can you can do you know ask your local orthodox rabbi again. But I would say that if you see the salmon there that's not filleted, that's just gutted and it has the skin on it, there's no problem with that. And the same with any other kosher fish. If you if they are selling, for example, trout um, or something else, if it's a whole fish and um, you gutted, maybe even if the head's cut off, but you can see the skin and it looks, you know, you can see where the cascasim were, where the scales were, or you can recognize the fish. That's enough. That's certainly. Is good. there anything that a person has to do just in case they use knives that they're using to gut or to well, cut? No, no. For the gutting, you don't have to worry because they, they, there's, a, there's, a, there's a drama about that. But they, they, they do this in the, in the fisheries. When they're doing one fish, that's all they do is that one fish. And all people accept it. In other words, even the, the Hamish stores, they go, they go down to the fish market and they buy gutted, they buy gutted fish. You know, nobody, nobody's worried about that. Right. Okay. Um, now, one of the issues moving on from, from, from fish, but maybe not from Costco, uh, one of the issues that seems to be changing on a daily basis is how, forgetting about even how restaurants and the kosher industry in general deals with it, but how an average person who wants to make a salad in their house uh, should deal with bedikas tolaim, should deal with issues relating to bugs. And, and the impression that people get is that we seem to be moving as a community in, in a direction of chumrah um, over the course of the past decade or two, and that it's, people get the impression that it's impossible to make a salad unless you have a light box and specialized filters and things of this nature. Uh, or you buy pre-checked where the hashkacha has taken care of it for you and from a reliable hashkacha, with, which obviously will, will often be sold at a premium price and uh, can be very expensive. Is there, I, I guess I'm asking, what's the proper approach to Bidikas Talayim, especially in light of the historical fact, it seems, that, you know, well, certainly we know, like, uh, Rashi and the Rambam didn't have a light box, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, the historical uh, fact seems to be that people didn't have these uh, extreme ways of checking mm-hmm. for, for bugs beyond looking with their own eyes. Right. Well, first of all, just remember, call Pinochet lo Yuelaliyamin. And that seems to be the way people are going today. But I don't want to make it sound like there is no issue. There certainly is an issue. One is required to to check. As a matter of fact, let me point something out. Just there is, no, you know, people have these books that say you wash a vegetable this way and you wash it that way. And the shteitnisht ergets. There's no halacha anywhere in Shulchan Aruch about how to wash a vegetable. You don't have to wash a vegetable at all. You have to check it. That's what it says in halacha. The reason that we have all these wonderful ideas and procedures of how to wash them is because we hope that after we wash them, we'll be more successful when we check them. But it's just a hechitim to be successful in your checking. Now, you're asking, are you required to have a light box? No, you're not required to have a light box. But you're required to check and to know what you're looking for. Sometimes if you don't know what, if you don't know what you're looking for, you won't see it. Um, if you want to look at it, hold it up to a light. That's certainly adequate. Um, if you wash it with a little soapy, like lettuce, if you wash it with some soapy water and then you rinse it very, very well, people have figured out the bugs don't remain anyway because they, the, bug, the, the bugs have kind of sticky feet, but the soap dislodges them, and, if you, and then you can wash them very well because you want to get a little soap off of it. So that works. But you're asking that, that people seem to be taking this much more thorough and much more 
let's not use the word seriously, but more actively than they did in the past. I'm not sure that they're taking more actively than they did in the past. They're just aware of it. But that doesn't preclude one from checking his own vegetables. As a matter of fact, I will say, and I know I'm going to be quoted, that I have heard people say that Moshe Rabbeinu said the only lettuce you can buy is positive or bodic or something like that. It's not true. You can check your own lettuce. There's no requirement to buy these these um, pre-checked, and by the way, the pre-checked stuff, people should not misunderstand. They do not sit and check every leaf of lettuce. What they do is they establish a chazaka, or a starka chazaka. They, they check a lot of stuff. They don't check every piece. And people who think that Moshe Rabbeinu felt that this is the only lettuce you can eat are not making any sense. So there's no requirement to buy these. As a matter of fact, for as you said, they're very expensive. You get two and a half pieces of lettuce and a, lot, and a piece of... A piece of uh, a plastic and then you know for five dollars that's not a way to to uh, to spend one's money and especially for people who don't have money um but one is required to check it so you check it well if you don't not sure how to check it go to your robin he'll show you how to check it i'm not sure i've answered uh, your question but uh, I, I think you have i think you have. i just want to you know, follow up you, you had mentioned that if you don't know what you're looking for then you can't check. Uh, what about, I know this is a, a machlokas in the postkin, but I guess what's the industry standard or what's your shita when it comes to something that you look at and you see a black dot on your, on your lettuce? You, you it, are it's, correct. It's a machlokas. People have said different things. If you're asking me personally, if you can't tell what it is, then I don't believe it's an issue. And what, what if that black dot moves? No, then that's beseir. That's an halacha. If it's moving, it's also. Right. So if it's moving, then you know. But if you see a black dot that's stationary, and you can't tell that it's a bug, but if you put it under a magnifying glass, you would see that it's a no, bug? Every, right. And, 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 you see, Chazal, excuse me, the Achronim have discussed the concept of a magnifying glass. When they came out, like 400 years ago, people were, I mean, whatever it was, it, it, it was, everybody was worried. Now you could see all these things, and everybody agrees. Every place who's ever written about this, to the best of my knowledge, has concurred. The Torah tells you that you have to go with what you can see, and it's an average person's eyesight. It doesn't mean somebody who has spectacularly good eyesight. It doesn't mean somebody who can't see well. But an average person's eyesight is what's koveya, what is there. And there are many, many proofs to this. Um, if you would start using, for example, it's a touch base. If you start using micrometers to measure things, all your tefillin are puzzled because they're not perfectly square. Or if you look at a sakin uh, uh, for shchita and you look under a, a magnifying glass, you'll see there are pigimas there that you can't feel. That's impossible. There's one is not required to look for that. And the same thing with bugs. Now you raised an interesting question: What happens if you see something but you can't tell what it is? You ask my opinion. My opinion is: If you can't tell what it is, then I don't think you have to worry about it. And even if, okay, even if someone, I mean, I know there was uh, one local Rav, I, I live in Long Island, one local Rav had done uh, a whole study where he said, uh, you know, and, and every time you buy the muscle anti-boy lettuce, he can show you afterwards under a magnifying glass all the bugs that you've just eaten if you eat that lettuce, even though you wouldn't have seen it just by, by looking. So you know you're eating bugs. but that's, Doesn't make a difference. That's, doesn't make a doesn't difference in Allah. Okay, now on uh, local Ashka. Now, is is there a problem? I I often get people who ask about uh, their traveling, and uh, they know that uh, they're in the Far East. It's impossible to find anything with a reliable Ashkaha, 
can they just go to a vegan restaurant? Because what could possibly be wrong okay, with, with vegan restaurants? Very good question. The answer is you cannot go to a vegan restaurant. First of all, there are problems with bugs. And second, there are problems with problems with Bishalakum. Because I'll tell us that if a guy cooks food under certain conditions, then that food is also, even if all the equipment and all the kalim and everything else is kosher. And one of the, even though you can argue that certain foods are not, are they're edible raw, and it's not it's not something that's fit, that's served at a fancy feast, but they cook rice. Rice is subject to the rules of bishalakum. Potatoes, we consider subject to the rules of bishalakum. So you, a, a vegan restaurant will not address those. Perhaps if you ask the question of a raw restaurant, they have this thing now that raw food, but you still have problems with bugs. So I would right. not recommend a, a vegetarian restaurant under any circumstances. What about something like sashimi, which I never eat in it, but what I understand is that it's just raw salmon. That that's what, that in theory would be fine. I actually was once in the in Japan, and they brought out a whole tuna for me, and they cut the sashimi. So I saw the sashimi being cut now, clean knife and all that. That's fine. But if it looks like salmon, it was tuna. What I, I saw was tuna, I think. But if it's salmon, and you go back to the issue of can you eat salmon? So if they're the only problem is these these sushi places will also cut up squid and shrimp and all sorts of other scutsum ramasim. So I would not go to a, a sushi bar and buy salmon either because you don't know how well if at all if they cleaned it all. Time, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us and uh, thank you for coming on to the show. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, so. take care.